0: Good morning. My name is Taylor Sutton. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to be together again in the book of Jude. So would you turn there with me? We are in our third week of this series in this book, and we've seen so far two big ideas. The first one is that the gospel is worth fighting for. In other words, there are times where it is necessary to defend or protect or contend for the gospel. The second big idea we saw last week is that Jude showed us when it is necessary to fight for the gospel. He described a situation, a crisis really, that called for nothing less than contending. What we will see today is how to fight for the gospel. And you might expect, given how severe and fiery Jude's diagnosis of the problem was last week, you might expect his marching orders for us to be every bit as ferocious. But surprisingly, we find a very different tone when Jude actually gets to telling us how to fight. So, let's look at these instructions together. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 23. Jude 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers To eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, we receive these words through your servant Jude as your words. And we give you this time now as we give our attention to them, as we think and consider and reflect together, and we ask for your help through Jesus, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. The way we fight for the gospel needs to reflect the gospel. That is the message of this passage in the book of Jude. The manner of our contending needs to match the object of our contending. The way we fight for the gospel needs to reflect the gospel. In Christopher Nolan's second uh, Batman movie, which was called The Dark Knight, there's a conflict central to that story between Batman and the Joker, played famously by Heath Ledger. And in this conflict, there's actually a bigger conflict between two worldviews. You may recall, if you've seen the movie, that Batman, he believes that the world has a moral order that is worth defending. The Joker, on the other hand, believes that whatever ethical code exists is nothing more than A bad joke, a thin veneer, which people, even seemingly good people, will abandon at the first sight of trouble. And so, one of the Joker's aims in the movie is to put seemingly good people in positions where they will be forced to violate their own ethical code, which, of course, would prove his point. And so it becomes significant in one scene where Batman is interrogating the Joker. He says to him, I have one rule, which famously in Batman lore is, is implied, he will not take anyone's life. Whatever other rules he's willing to break, he has one rule. And so there's a dramatic scene uh, later in the movie where Batman refuses to kill even the Joker. He has one rule. There's something similar at work here in the book of Jude. If we as Christians, in our defense of the message that lies at the heart of our faith, if our defense of that message violates the message, we've already lost. We've, we've ceased defending the message if our very defense Violates it. So, the question then becomes, well, how do you fight for a message like this? What would it look like to give a vigorous defense for a message that says the king of the universe died for his enemies? And by the way, we were those enemies. What would such a defense look like? Well, Jude answers that question with three commands. There are three imperatives that form the architecture of this paragraph. Those commands are remember, keep, and have mercy. Remember, keep, and have mercy. Let's look at each of these together. First, remember. You can see this in verse 17, where he writes, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles. And then in verses 18 and 19, he he unpacks this command to remember. I'd like to summarize verses 17 through 19 like this Christians, stand firm with the peace the gospel gives you. Stand firm with the peace. That the gospel gives you. So he says, remember in verse 17, and then verse 18, he he quotes this apostolic prediction. This isn't a, a Bible verse, this is something, presumably, that was verbally preached to this church by one or more apostles. So the prediction is in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So that's the prediction. And then in verse 19, Jude says this prediction has come true in the false teachers that are troubling your church. And the evidence that Jude puts forward for that claim is their own lives. He says you can tell that they are fulfilling this prediction about scoffers following their own ungodly desires because of how they operate. They cause divisions. They are worldly and they lack the spirit. And all of this is is packaged under the command to remember. So the question I think is why does he remind them of this? What's his his aim in giving them this reminder? Well I think it's clear that he wants to fortify their resolve to contend. That's what the whole letter is about. That's what verse three announced uh, his purpose to be to, to call them to fight. And so he's strengthening their resolve to contend. Well, how does that? How do these words do that? How does this reminder strengthen them? Well, for one thing, it ought to stabilize them to know that this is not a surprise. He's reminding them that this was this very thing: uh, divisive, worldly people coming into the church, causing problems, causing divisions. The apostles told you, church, that it would happen like this. So there's a sense of of peace that comes with that, of knowing that this has not caught God off guard. This is not a surprise to Him. This is exactly how He said it would happen. And I think there's another reassurance here, maybe a little more implied, which has to do with their identity in Christ. Because look at the subtle contrast that Jude draws in these verses between uh, the church he's writing to, these believers, and these false teachers that have come into the church. He, sa- he calls them beloved, but the false teachers are scoffers. He calls them those who belong to our Lord Jesus Christ. He refers to Jesus as our Lord. They are His, but these false teachers Are worldly and devoid of the Spirit. In other words, you know who you are, church, Christian, community of believers. And the reason that this was encouraging, perhaps, was these false teachers were probably saying something like, hey, if you don't get on board with our understanding of the Christian life, you're a second-rate Christian at best. Maybe you're not even a real Christian. And so part of the battle here is for true Christians to know, to be reminded that they are true Christians, that they are beloved, that they belong to Jesus. So with the the peace of this reassurance, they can stand firm, they can do what they need to do With peace. And this reflects the gospel because the message they're defending is, among other things, a message of peace. And so they ought to be able to contend for that message with peace. They don't need to approach this conflict feeling threatened, feeling insecure. There, and we could say our defense of the gospel should not be shrill or frantic or anxious. We have the peace of knowing that God loves us, that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and that Jesus Christ, who has risen, is the king over all things. Our God can tell us the end from the beginning. And so we, we move into whatever kinds of contending we have to do with a deep sense of peace. It's as if Jude says here, relax. God loves you, and he told you it wouldn't be easy. So stand firm with the peace that the gospel brings. Second, keep. You can see this at the very beginning of verse 21. The command is, keep yourselves in the love of God. And when we look at that command and we zoom out and look at verse 20 and verse 21, we see this idea. Christian, use the gospel... To know God more. Use, rely upon the gospel to know God more. What we have in verse 20 and verse 21 are four actions that we are called to do build yourselves up, pray in the Spirit keep yourselves in the love of God and wait for the mercy of Jesus. The main command of these four is the the third one, keep yourselves in the love of God. The other three are telling us how to keep ourselves in the love of God. So we have a main command, keep yourselves, with three supporting instructions clarifying how it is that we do that. So let's start with the main command and then work our way out to the other three. The main command, verse 21, is keep yourselves in the love of God. What does Jude mean by this? What does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? Most basically, we can say that it means take hold and hold fast to God. Or keep on trusting in Jesus. Continue in the faith which you have begun. It's not that Jude is saying that God's love is fickle and that we have to continue to earn it somehow. Otherwise, he'll get tired of us and withdraw his love. That that's contrary to the very essence of the message. It's helpful to think and remember that God's love is also a covenantal commitment to save those who are His. Yes, it involves His, His affections, His emotions even, but it is perhaps most fundamentally a commitment to faithfully protect and finally save those who belong to him. But we we know from the message, from the gospel, that the only place where you can enjoy that divine commitment to your eternal protection is in Christ. Only those who take refuge in Christ by faith are safe in the love of God. Outside of Christ, there is only judgment. So, this is a call for believers to continue trusting in Jesus, to not wander away after these false teachers. Now, that, of course, raises a very important question. Is it possible for true believers to lose their salvation? Can someone who has come to a saving faith in Christ walk away from it, and lose the salvation that they once had? The answer, I am convinced, is no. And the reason I say that is because there are too many statements in the New Testament that clearly proclaim that believers will be saved in the end. Just to give you one example, John 10, 28, Jesus says that he will lose no sheep that is his, that no one will snatch any of his sheep away. And we could look at many other examples. But notice what Jude himself already said. Look at verse 1. Writing to these people, he called them beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So, if that's the case, if uh, a true believer will not lose his or her salvation, why does he then command them to keep themselves? Well, I think it's helpful here to think for a moment about what is known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And Wayne Grudem, a theologian, gives this helpful definition. He says, the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints can be summed up in two statements that are both true. Statement number one, all true Christians will persevere. Statement number two, only those who persevere are true Christians. All true Christians will persevere, and only those who persevere are true Christians. What that means is, for example, if someone makes a profession of faith in Christ and they begin to live like a Christian, they they look like a Christian, and then sometime later they walk away and they reject Jesus. They say, I don't believe that stuff anymore, and they persist in that. The Bible would say they did not lose their salvation. Their lack of perseverance, rather, revealed that they were not genuine believers to begin with. But I think that pushes us to another question in light of Jude 21, which is this. If that's true, if the perseverance of a true Christian is guaranteed by God Himself, then why do Christians have to be told to persevere? Why not just declare the truth like other verses do, like Romans 8, like John ten twenty eight, which I mentioned a moment ago. Why say, Jude, keep yourselves in the love of God? Well, we're, we're running in here, we're running into, once again, this great mysterious tension between the sovereignty of God on one hand and human responsibility on the other. The Bible says, without embarrassment, God is in control of everything that happens. And the Bible also makes clear that under the the banner of God's sovereignty and control, human beings have real moral agency. We make real choices. So, in the context of perseverance, what that means is God's keeping of a Christian happens through the Christian's will, not outside of that will, not contrary to that will. You, you could think of it this way, that God is holding on to those who are His, and one significant way in which He holds on to us is through commanding and enabling us to hold on to Him. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about this. Happy to talk more afterwards. But with that basic understanding in mind, let's come back to Jude's argument. He gives us this command, keep yourselves in the love of God. Hold fast to Christ. Keep on trusting in Jesus. And then he gives us these three supporting commands. Verbs, these three activities that are ways of continuing on in faith. The first one is, in verse 20, "building yourselves up in your most holy faith." Now I, I take faith here to be uh, that objective sense of faith that we saw back in verse three. In other words, this is faith as the message that is believed. And what that means, if that's right, then what he's saying here in verse 20 is the church builds itself up in the gospel, that we keep on relying upon this message that we protect and treasure and this message that we have received. That message also functions as the, the means through which the church grows, so that means the, the message of Jesus, the message of a crucified and risen Savior, is not just a passive thing that the church protects. It is also, it is, a, it is rather, I should say, it is a dynamic reality that the church is to unleash in its midst. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. So we use the gospel to grow together. That's the first way that we keep ourselves. The second way is by praying in the holy spirit. That's at the end of verse 20. Now some uh, have said this this might be a special kind of praying distinct from typical Christian prayer. And that might be true. That might be what Jude means, but It is also true, even if that's what Jude means here, it's also true that all true Christian praying is praying in the Spirit, praying in the power and with the guidance and help of the Spirit. So either way, whichever way Jude means praying in the Spirit here, we can at least be confident of this, that one of the ways we keep ourselves in God's love is by talking to Him. It's by seeking Him in prayer. We don't want to settle for merely saying true things about God. We want to seek the living God in prayer. So we build ourselves up in the faith. We pray in the Holy Spirit. And then third, at the end of verse 21, we also keep ourselves by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy that leads to eternal life. He's talking here about the return of Christ, that Christ is going to return to save His people. And so we keep ourselves in God's love. We we keep on trusting by lodging our hope firmly and exclusively in the return of Christ. So, verse 20, verse 21, they tell us that we we fight for the gospel by using the gospel to know God more. This is I think an incredible concept that Jude is writing to Christians who are embattled, in a crisis, threatened with a toxic false teaching that he regards as dangerous. And yet, even in that situation, when the gospel is threatened by a false teaching, a serious false teaching, he commands them not to surrender their own commitment to cling to Christ for themselves— and this, again, reflects the gospel because Jesus came so that we might have fellowship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when that gospel is threatened with distortion, it ought to drive us deeper into that fellowship, not draw us out of it. So our own Clinging to Christ is not merely complementary to the fight for the gospel. It is the fight. Use the gospel, Jude says, to know God more. That's the second way that we fight so as to reflect the gospel. The third command is have mercy. You can see this in verse 22 Have mercy on those who doubt. Jude then follows that up with two more commands, uh, save and show mercy, which I think all add up to the same thing. And we can summarize it this way, extend to others the same compassion that God has shown you through the gospel. So here it is again, reflecting the gospel in the way that we contend. Extend to others the same compassion that God has shown to you through the gospel. What what Jude is saying here is, at least this is what it seems like, he's talking about how to handle fellow Christians who are perhaps being swayed by the false teachers, this is a very different tone than how Jude described the false teachers themselves in verses 5 through 16 which seems to indicate that no matter how poisonous a false teaching might be there is still hope that those who are deceived by it or who are being troubled by it or who are perhaps drifting away because of it there is still hope that they can come back. And no matter how repulsive a false teaching is, Christians refuse to transfer the disgust they feel for the false teaching to the people who are influenced by it. Because we realize that if God had treated us that way, we would be doomed. So we extend to others the same compassion, the same warm hearted kindness that God has shown to us through the gospel. So Jude says, stand firm. With the peace that the gospel brings you. Use the gospel, secondly, to know God more. And third, extend to others the same compassion that God has shown to you through the gospel. And all of these things add up to show us how the way we fight for the gospel reflects the gospel itself. The manner of our contending matches the object of our contending. And one of the reasons that we need this, one of the reasons we need to hear this today is that our culture, the world outside of the church, is constantly trying to disciple us in its own methods of handling conflict and disagreement. The world is very familiar with people fighting for what they believe in. But the world is not familiar with the method of fighting that Jude 17 through 23 describes. It it seems to me that our culture today really gives people two options for how to fight, how to engage in disagreement or conflict. And, And really, the two options are relativism, or hostility. The two choices that you have are either to surrender conviction and basically concede that your belief really doesn't matter. It's really not worth the trouble of defending at all. That's relativism. Or you fight for your conviction by despising and defeating anyone who disagrees. Jesus gives his people a better way to deal with conflict. He gives us, through Jude, a better way to handle the sometimes serious disagreements that arise within the people of God. I mean, think about it this way. Because Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God and and find true life, because that is true, we hold certain convictions so tightly that we're willing to die for them. There are beliefs that Christians are willing to die for, but on the other hand, those same beliefs tell us that we are former enemies of God reconciled at the cost of Jesus' life, which means that not only are we willing to die for our beliefs, but our beliefs drive us, empower us to love anyone who would try to be our enemy. So the gospel means... That we can engage in conflict with both courage and humility. We can enter into disagreements without compromise, but also without hatred. And not only do we need this as A local church, as the church in America, as the church across the globe, not only do we need this, but the world needs us to be like this. Because the world has no shortage of cowardly compromise. The world also has no shortage of spite-filled shouting matches. The world has plenty of that. But imagine if the world, even as it disagreed with our beliefs, looked at the church and saw the church, even in conflict, reflecting the grace and truth of Jesus. Jude is saying that is what we must commit to pursue. Whether we're in the midst of a crisis or we're preparing for the next one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the immovable truth and the warm hearted grace that you have put before us in the message of your Son. Sent, crucified, risen, ascended for us to save and rescue and transform us. And Lord, we are humbled by the call of Jude to not only contend, which is hard enough, but to contend in a way that is fitting for gospel people. So we receive this word from you, and we ask you to help us be the kind of Christians who can contend like this. And may you receive the glory as you do this work in us. Amen.